This is a fantastic story, isn't it? Fantastic in every way. It's, it's fantastic in the sense that it would never, ever happen. It's so far-fetched, really. Uh, to, I mean, Jesus has this penchant for, for telling outrageous stories. Many of his stories are just outrageous. They're actually designed to provoke people to think, what on earth are you talking about? Uh, and this is very much in that tradition. And it's hard to know which is the most outrageous bit of this story. Uh, probably the first part is pretty much the most outrageous bit. It's a very shocking thing that the youngest son would go to the father and request his share of the inheritance. Now, today that would be offensive, right? You, you don't go to your father and ask for your inheritance before he's dead. That's, uh, <laughs> no, you don't do that. That's not the thing to do. And, and back in the day... Back in the day, this was even more uh, upsetting because if you had an estate, the viability of the estate was that it functioned as a whole and to divide the estate up put the viability of the whole thing at risk. And so by the younger son saying, I want half of, you know, my half of the estate, it, suddenly the rest of the family who are surviving there, plus a bunch of workers no doubt, their whole financial situation is put in a, a less robust situation. It's, um, it's a profoundly insulting, rude, provocative thing to do. Uh, my dad, when he was alive, for most of his adult life, he worked as a ma uh, manufacturer of rubber stamps. Some of you may never have heard of rubber stamps. They're the things that have handles and you stamp them on the stamp pad and you stamp them on things. Banks used to use them a lot. The NRMA was a big customer. Uh, and when I finished my theological studies, there was a quirk of history, a time of recession in the early 1990s in Australia, and the government changed the law so that every company in, on its company seal, which was a rubber stamp, had to have its Australian company number, an ACN. And so every company in the country was ordering a new rubber stamp. So for my dad at that time, business was booming. He was on TV because he was a recession buster. So I came back into the country and he said, Dave, business is going berserk. I need help. Can you come and help? And I did and the place was chaotic and it was a really interesting experience, blah, blah, blah. And I can see my dad thinking, this is the life. Here I have a thriving family business and my son, my number one son, has come to work with me and he will take the business on and things will be fantastic. And I had no intention ever of becoming a rubber stamp manufacturer. <laughs> that might surprise some of you. And uh, a couple of weeks later I had to say to Dad, Dad, you know what, I need to let you know I'm never ever going to take on the family business. Which I knew was very disappointing to him even though he wasn't surprised by that. I can't even imagine saying to him, you know what, Dad, here's a plan. Why don't you sell up the business and give me half the cash? How insulting. How insulting would that be? And that's what we have in this story. It's kind of tantamount to saying to your father, why don't you drop dead and give me your stuff? Wow. And so... The young son goes off and squanders. Like any person, really, and particularly a young person, if you end up with a whole lot of money that you've never had to manage for yourself, what do you do with it? Well, you spend it. 
What do you spend it on? Whatever the hell you want to spend it on. <laughs> and away he goes. That's a perfectly understandable reaction. That part of the story is the most believable part, in a sense. And then, after a while, things turn bad and he gets into very dire straits and he finds himself, a good Jewish boy, feeding pigs and being jealous of them with regard to what they're being fed. So that's a pretty low state of affairs. And he comes up with a plan. He says, I've been so awful, so he's got some self-awareness, so awful to my family and my father, there's no way I could be regarded as a son again. But even the people who he employs has a better life than the one I've got at the moment. So maybe there'll be enough family connection for me to get through the employee vetting process with a bit of a favourable nod. I'll go back and ask for a job. I'll never be a son again, but at least I could work there and, and get a decent meal. Well, it's not a bad plan, all things considered. And it might have even worked if the father didn't have a whole other way of behaving. Because this is the other so highly improbable part of this story. The father appears to be sitting, looking out to the horizon, longing for his son to return. He's not insulted by his son, like he's not so burnt by the previous interaction that he's thinking, if I never see that whatever again, I'll be happy. He's, he's just devastated at the fact that his son has gone and he wants his son back. He doesn't curtail his son's activity, he doesn't say, no, you can't go or anything. He gives his son all the freedom but just longs for his son to return. The father is watching and waiting and when he glimpses the sun at the horizon, he gets up and he runs to his son. And this is the least believable part because old men do not run. And old men in the ancient Near East, it was not only physically dangerous, it was undignified. And as an old man, the only thing you've really got left, your health and your dignity, and <laughs> they're both at risk when you run. He runs to his son. And his son starts the spiel he's prepared, probably every step of the way back, rehearsed the lines he was going to say and how he was going to bend and bow and scrape and hope. And, and the father just says, quick, get the robe, get the ring, get the fatted calf, we've got to celebrate. Um, just an amazing response that was so unexpected. Which raises the question, of the three characters that are the main characters in this story, the the young son, the father and the older son, who is the most prodigal? Who is the most prodigal means wasteful or um, irresponsible with your stuff, kind of? Who is, who is the most prodigal? Because it's easy to see the prodigal nature of the young son. Anyone remember Corey, what's his name? <laughs> he was a party boy. <laughs> I thought that was the most appropriate picture to, to put here. It's easy to critique the young son. He goes off and... It, he does what young people do and we, we understand that that's wasteful. He just spreads his money around, all sorts of things, and there's no return for it. His youthful enthusiasm is youthful and enthusiastic and it's all gone and um, he wants to hive off and not work. He wants to live off his parents' money and have a good time. It's the ancient equivalent of going to university. 
<laughs> Although not anymore, I've got to tell you. <laughs> but it was a thing. So we know, we know that he's prodigal, right? But what about the father? He's unexpectedly kind of wasteful as well. He doesn't stop the son. He divides up the estate. He puts the whole family at risk. He doesn't sanction his young son at all. He gives him the money. He sets him up for failure. Is that responsible? Is that the the loving thing to do? He's obviously devoted and doting on his son, but in a way that is unhealthy maybe? The father is incredibly gracious, but did he do the best thing for all concerned? But what about the eldest son? And here I think we get one of the most interesting turns in the whole story. Because for many of us, we relate to the eldest son. We're not the profligate younger son. We're not in the position of the father necessarily. But the eldest son we kind of understand. Because he seems to be ripped off. He's worked his whole life. He's been faithful and we hear his complaint and we understand it. That's not fair. He's gone off and he's spent half the fortune of the family and he comes back and this is how you treat him and I've worked tirelessly the whole time and I don't even get a party for my birthday. What's going on with that? How is this older son prodigal? And I, and I tell you, and I think this is the the critical turn in the story because what the older son reveals is that he actually believes that what the younger son did was kind of good. He just didn't have the guts to do it. The younger son got all that money, lucky bugger, came back and had a party even luckier and I missed out. And the father says to him, hang on a minute, who's missing out? What's really important here? What's the most important thing? It sounds like you think the stuff is the most important thing. Is the stuff the most important thing? Is it the money? Is that what's most important here? Like, should I just be the money machine? Is that, is that how this should work? Is it about how much you've got, how much you get to utilise, how much you get to spend, how much you've got in the bank? Is that, is that the most important thing? And most of us will go, well, yeah. Wouldn't we? Yeah, it's pretty important. We, we kind of know that we believe in a whole bunch of things, but basically how much you've got in the bank is pretty important. But the point of the story is that actually no. He got all the money. Did he find life having all that money? He used it whatever way he wanted to. Nobody controlled the way he used it. Did that bring him life? When circumstances changed, did it give him a robust sense of well-being and fullness of entering into all that life holds for him? No. No, the money doesn't do that. What about status? Because we see the father wrap a cloak around him to give him a bit of dignity, put some shoes on his feet and a ring, a signet ring. You are my son. You belong with me. Is it the status, the restoration of sonship? Forget your little story about becoming an employee. You're my son and I love you. Now that's pretty good. Is it the status? Does the status give you what you need? It's better than the money, I reckon. 
But the older son had the status the whole time and that didn't seem to do it for him. When I was younger and trying to work out what I'd do with my life, I felt like a bit of a nobody and I was short and not very powerful and for a brief period of time I thought about becoming a police officer because I thought that wearing a uniform and having authority given to me and maybe carrying a gun could help, I might be somebody. Now thankfully my loving father took me out of that but we know the power of status, don't we? And we crave status, recognition, to be somebody in the social order. It's important to us. It's better than being nobody, right? And it feeds us to a certain degree, but it doesn't really give us everything that we need. Because the thing that is really critical, of course, is the relationship. It's not the stuff. It's not the status. It's this incredible bond, this love the father has for both his sons. That is everything. That's the critical thing. That's the most important thing. And all the cultural rules are broken here because the culture doesn't really understand that kind of importance, that life is found there. We understand money, we understand exchange, we understand status and power. We don't really understand love very well. It escapes us, it's, it's strangely vulnerable and requires more of us than we are willing to give quite often. I sat with Afaf a couple of times this week and uh, it's a bit distressing to see what cancer does to a person. But it's beautiful to see how she's surrounded by people that love her. A daughter-in-law that's flown in from Jordan, I think. A daughter-in-law nursing her her sons every morning and every evening, texts from you people sustaining her. And I think that if you were to offer Afaf money or status or even the elongation of her days in exchange for the love that she's surrounded by, she'd tell you, no, I'm in the hands of my God. I'm in good hands. We don't understand that, do we? It kind of doesn't make sense. But that's the point of this story. It's not in the stuff. It's not in the status. It's not in the outer things. It's in the quality of the love that we share, the divine love, the divine love that we encounter in each other in those beautiful moments when it's not exchange and it's not just playing roles but we actually perceive ourselves and the other and we love each other. It's incredible. This is one of the mysteries we discover in Christ that we are loved and accepted not because of who we are or what we do but because God's nature is to love us. 
there's nothing we can do, there's no person we could be that would put us outside of God's love. God just loves us recklessly, extravagantly, almost irresponsibly. There's nowhere you can go, no way you can be that takes you outside of that love. We're formed by this world and that means we find it difficult to conceive of that love. We understand exchange, we understand power and status, but that kind of love, it's really hard for us to get. And so Jesus tells this outrageously, unbelievable, made-up story and it's a true story because it speaks about the true nature of God's love for us, a truth beyond our capacity really to believe it fully. As we gather around this table in a moment, whether we identify with the young son or the older son or the father or we're not sure which or maybe bits of all of them at different times, we know that life is not found in any of the peripheral things, not in the money, not in the status, It is found in the love of God. Life is found in God's grace-shaped love for us, demonstrated in the self-giving of the Son to which we openly receive and simply say thank you and amen. Let us pray. Lord, your grace is not only amazing, it's virtually unbelievable. And yet, that doesn't stop it coming to us. We thank you for your love that doesn't stop at our behaviour, doesn't stop when we turn our back. It just keeps loving us and drawing us close. We thank you for that. May we open our hearts to you more and more and be so transformed by this love that it comes from us and touches others and we enter fully into life. To the glory of your name. Amen.